Bones and Bobbins podcast is now on Patreon. Woo. Would you like access to bonus episodes, digital extras, exclusive merch, and more? Join us in the curiosity shop at patreon.com backslash bones and bobbins. Your generous support helps make the show happen and will also earn you our very eternal gratitude and entry into our private Patreon-only Facebook group. Which you want to be in because it's fun. It's true. Yes, and if you happen to be an insomniac like we are, <laughs> that, uh, that's generally when we're active, so yeah. Yeah, bring then you'll... on your weird. Yep, I do believe that last night, in the middle of the night, I posted a TikTok about a woman that did her own wet specimen of her uterus after it was removed. You certainly did, and it was delightful. Right? One of us. Yeah, how cool. <laughs> I mean, it, it seems as though she went through some trauma yeah. um, related to it. It was very, it seemed very cathartic for her. Yeah. I mean, what an excellent act of both care and fuck you. Right. Like, yes. Simultaneously. Yeah. In a dusty old shop on a forgotten old street, you'll find two witches with books three boxes deep. Next to rusty old needles and faded red thread, you'll come in for yarn, but leave with pigments instead. Whether poisons or patterns, we're always discreet. Where creepy and crafty and morbidity meet. Welcome to the Bones and Bobbins podcast. Uh, hello, <laughs> morbid makers. We are your slightly creepy, mildly disconcerting, somewhat sinister, delightfully discomposed, opaquely odd, merely morbid, marvelously misanthropic hosts. And this is Bones and Bobbins, Season 3, Episode 15, Waxing ah. Dramatic. So dramatic. <laughs> I'm Haley from Red Handled Scissors and the Very Serious Crafts Podcast, and I go by she and her. And I'm Natalie from Uber Dark Designs, an official true crime creative, and my pronouns are also she and her. Yay! Yay! So how you doing? What's up? What's happening? What's going on? Man, I don't, I don't know. I feel like I should have an answer for that, and I just don't that's uh, valid yeah um i haven't put up halloween decorations yet and i really should i have not sought out someone with a costco membership to help fulfill my dream of full-size candy bars for halloween yet and i definitely should do that oh if you could order them online through costco let me know i got you a hookup oh yeah. Do you? Oh, you my can. parents. My parents live at Costco. They love Costco. They bump into other people. The people at the Costco know their anniversary and their birthdays because they oh are goodness. that couple. All right, we'll we'll talk. Um, <laughs> we'll talk later. But yeah, so that's going on, and all of the sudden, the murder shack might start getting torn down in a Ooh. few days, which is. 
all manner of construction at my house, and my dad and my stepmom are coming to visit at the end of the month. And I swear to you, if there is plywood on the side of my house for Halloween, I am going to be livid. I I can imagine. Is that where the crows are? Uh, no, the crows are behind the house. Okay. I was like, hopefully you won't fuck with the crows, because... No, no, the the crows are, um, I've got woods behind the house, so... We got woods. <laughs> we got woods. I did, however, uh, finally get my makeup for my Halloween costume. Ooh! Yep. That's fun. Yeah, it's really hard to... Get makeup a shade paler than me. I I know those feels. Um, yeah. Hey, it's it's usually what they it's it's to be honest, it's usually like fucking concealer. <laughs> like it's other people's concealer. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I remembered a bit too late that Manic Panic has literal white goth powder basically for your face um and i'm fairly certain they used to have sunscreen called vampire's veil i mean that would track yeah it was an absurdly high spf before (laughs) absurdly high spfs existed along with like a a hot topic (laughs) along with the zinc in it the funny thing is is the uh the place that I used to get all of my pan- manic panic goodness from yep. was not from a hot topic and it wasn't from any kind of salon because this was pre Oh yeah, that uh, shit didn't exist right. in salons. I mean, it, it still doesn't where I grew up. It is it was literally from this little store called Tie Me Down and it's exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> Ooh. So, local bondage uh, store. Pretty much, uh, it was it, it was it was an adorable little shop. Everybody there was amazing. Um, well, local yeah. bondage stores do tend to be. Yes. it's like going into one of the leather shops in the village. Yeah. It's oh. Like, yep. Oh, hi, elders. <laughs> I appreciate what you've done for the community. Yes. Thank A you for plus. paving the way. Hmm. But. Oh my goodness. So, yeah, I I apparently didn't know and then I had a million answers. So, how are you? What's up? I I'm all right. It is fall, bitches, which is my I think I have some kind of reverse seasonal depression. Now, uh-huh. which doesn't make sense because I don't know, because it only a lot works of people for re- fall though. But for, yeah, for me, it's like, well, Steve, for me, it goes from October straight through December. And oh, then okay. parts I mean, of January-ish. Um, where, like, I I love it. <laughs> like, Ooh, I, I love, love it everything too. about it. I love that it gets dark early. I love that the leaves are falling. It's cold. And the clouds always look grumpy. And I... Am way more energized. Also, I'm hopped up on cold brew right now. Should probably disclaimer that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, and you're sick, so yeah. But I just it's all chaos. Yeah. So this time of year is my jam. It makes me very happy. 
Um, Ooh, I took a video for you earlier of Ooh. what it looks like out my windows. Um, Ooh. And it didn't quite capture all the wavy glass goodness that is happening. <gasps> but the leaves are near peak right oh, now. And yes. the sky is so blue. And Ooh, I love it. I mean, it's 630, so it's probably ceasing to be that right now. But it... Oh, and it was 70 today for reasons. <laughs> um, I mean, it's been freezing the rest of the days. Did you know that my spouse is a terrible person? <laughs> <laughs> no. Not really. No, I did not really know that at all. <laughs> um, so it's been cold, right? Mm -hmm. And there are approximately one million different heating sources in my house <laughs> none of them connected it's like frankenstein decided to heat my house <laughs> and then was bad at building a heating system about Tracks. the same amount bad as building a person <laughs> um so i for reasons I have been demanding that at some point soon we turn on the heater. It is 55 degrees. <laughs> like it is that time of day oh. in my house. And Jeremy's like, mm -mm, shrug, shrug, shrug. And, you know, we've lit the, um, we have a wood stove and we've lit mm -hmm. that. And oh, I, I mean, that's stove. pleasant. And I finally got um, heated mattress pads. Um, that have a side that I can turn on for me and a side that Jeremy cannot turn on. So that's Perfect. fine. But just yeah. casually, a couple of days ago, I was toting my space heater, my newly purchased <laughs> space heater, upstairs <laughs> when Jeremy says, you know... You could just turn the thermostat on the third floor to a warmer setting because you have baseboard bo bleh, baseboard boiler heat up there. And like, I know that I have radiators up here. Mm -hmm. I didn't fucking know that the like 200 year old, not really, <laughs> like. 60 year old mm -hmm. thermostat that's up here works and that it does in fact independently turn on the heat on the third floor <laughs> do you have to do that thing where you do the pressure test on the radiator do you have like the big old-fashioned ones that have a little I pressure don't have test the thing? ones that need to be bled um yeah. i i have like the normal oh, gotcha. um, <laughs> Um, uh, for those of you listening, a light next to me just turned itself off. Yep, it did. Several lights, yeah. in fact. My grandma does that. Yeah. My grandma's happens. all about the light bulbs and shutting doors if you've not shut the door. That's fair. Yeah, no, like, she's protective and that's yeah. cool and I appreciate it, but it's hell on our light bulbs, especially when we're short and can't reach them, grandma. Yeah. But the worst part... <laughs> about this whole thing mm -hmm. is that I then later that night 
after I did turn on the goddamn heat on the third floor. (laughs) And I mean, I was being conservative. I turned that thing to 62, and it still felt like a beach. (laughs) And then I went down to go to bed and realized that the two bedrooms also are radiator heat and that i have been yelling about changing (laughs) the furnace filter for because there is also forced air heat and the wood stove and i guess there's a wood furnace downstairs but i think that is a bad idea to use i don't even know but i have been bitching about this stupid (laughs) furnace filter for weeks and Jeremy just casually did not, like, and I don't know how I didn't make the connection. I know how radiator heat works. <laughs> I have never in my life not had radiator heat. Mm-hmm. It has been hot water heat since I was born all through <laughs> living in New York. And here, like, I know how this works. We and- have a propane tank and I'm fucking mystified. I have no idea. Like, I feel oh my like an God. idiot. So do we. And Oof. it's for cooking. That one is for mm. cooking. We have heating oil that is separate. It's, yeah, I, I don't even know. But, like, what the hell? <laughs> he just casually did not mention when he saw that I clearly, um, I was having an autism moment <laughs> where I was very, very specifically going for the thing. <laughs> To the detriment of any other options. And he just casually didn't mention. (sighs) Yeah. It's that time of year where you play chicken. Play chicken with the the thermostat. And somebody in the... he watched me order (laughs) hundreds of dollars of, like, mattress pads and heated blankets and space heaters. I ordered multiple space heaters. Oh, Jeremy. And I mean, to be fair, electricity is probably less expensive than heating oil. So. Yeah, I'm. Oof, I, that propane is no joke. No, no, no. We just filled up our heating oil tank, and holy shit! <laughs> yeah, I cried last year was the first time, uh, and and I cried, and I was like, "That's not gonna last the whole winter." <laughs> Good job. No, 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 no. They're like, yeah, no. Oh, yeah. I learned why we're playing chicken, though, from because it's I'm in charge of that sort of thing. Like getting the people in to do that stuff. Like I pay those bills. (laughs) This is why you need the ledger. (laughs) It came. Oh, yay. I know. Um, I'm so excited. But this is how I figured out that. The heating oil mm-hmm. lasts like three weeks in a house this big. Whoa. Yeah. Oh, God. I cannot even. I don't know how much money you had to drop, but I had to drop about a grand to yep. fill up this thing. Uh, ours was like almost $800 to yeah. to fill it up. But it lasts a lot longer for us. Um, well, so I guess that's why we're not turning the heat on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 
But I have to remember to check it. Last year, I did run into the whole where I forgot to keep an eye on the tank. Because the tank's outside. You know what I mean? I got to go down the... It's not like we don't have... We we have a fairly decent-sized property. So Ours is in the scary basement. Yeah, ours is outside on this... Yeah. And I wasn't checking it because it's not something that I'm used to. And... We ran out <laughs> and then I cried. I called crying because they were like, well, you know, it's this to heat the tank. And then there's a $250 charge for this. And there's a $100 charge for this. And then there's like, I was just like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> like, I... So they were, they were very sweet. Um, everything we have here is a co-op. My oil company is a co-op. My electric company is a co-op. My internet service co-op. Everything's a co-op. We belong and we belong to the actual food co-op. Like, it is very interesting to me and kind of delightful. But, like, our that. our uh, our propane people also have uh, a mechanic in town. They have, that makes sense, but they have some farms, too. It's real weird. But, you know. I mean, that makes, I mean, that does make some sense if they're making, like, uh, ethanol or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. Whatevs. Yep. I, man, homeownership is expensive and weird. Yeah. It's very adulty. It's very adulty. Um, so, you know what? Hmm. I think now is the perfect time to take a quick break to thank yeah. all of our fantastic Curiosity Shop members over on Patreon. And give a totally normal and not at all creepy. Okay, maybe a little creepy, but not <laughs> super creepy. Welcome to our newest member, Rachel Myers. Welcome, Hi, Rachel. <laughs> Welcome. You're the best. The best. And you know, we would totally go explore hidden old graveyards in the woods with you. Because you're Absolutely. that good. Absolutely. And if you want in on this fun... Not only will you get some really great secret surprises, but you also get a huge, like, 50-plus episodes uh, backlog of Patreon-only episodes. How many times can I say episodes in one sentence? Episodes! All of them! Come and get them! And we make a good gift. You know, holiday season's coming up. You can gift. It's very true. Um, Also... I am going to because it is um so one of the one of our wonderful new patrons um has gone back through and listened to all of our episodes to get caught up and I just want to hug them for that and Sarah was like hey Natalie did you ever knit those socks and I was like no the fuck I did not (laughs) yeah that's the problem with people um actually listening to our entire catalog. Yeah, you're going to hold me accountable. know the shit we didn't do. Right. But then it occurred to me that, you know, it's, there are a lot of people that do go through, like, seasonal depression, which we are here for. It is valid. It is hard. <laughs> are we here for it. We have it. <laughs> <laughs> we, right? Um, we are, yeah. But it occurred to me that, um... That I want to set aside like a day. I'll probably start out like once, like once every other week, but just set aside some time where I am going to craft and maybe watch something and then just go live and 
patrons can join and do like crafting or watching something with me. Um, oh, I like that. To do, so just to have some socialization and to do some crafty stuff and maybe just, you know, shoot the shit or, you know, make fun of Zach, whatever, Baggins or what is his last name? Is that his last name, Baggins? Baggins. Oh, my God. Midwest. Yeah. Baggins. 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 Um, you know, and. Actually, so. I think he's. I think it's Baggins. Is it Baggins? Um, so if you're a patron, you can join in on our little, you know, crafty coven, um, and stuff too. So, and if you join and you don't like us, it's, it's all right. (laughs) Yeah, we still like you. It's fine. Yeah. We're not for everybody. Nope. And that's fine. Um, so join us. We are delightful. Uh, the entire Uh group is delightful. Uh, no drama, just fun. Fun and creepiness. It's true. I I appreciate that yeah. about us. There are there are just a handful of groups that I'm part of that are just decent people. Mm-hmm. And this is one of them. I mean, I may be biased because it's <laughs> one of my groups. But there's anyway. also that joy in going, "Oh my gosh." I, none of my friends will get this, but this delights me. Oh, wait, I have a group of people that will understand why this thing delights me. Let me share it with them. I mean, we are also your friends. Yeah. True. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially if, I know that people listen to podcasts, and I do this too, and think, oh, my friend told me, oh, wait, (laughs) I don't actually know that person. Well... If you join us on Patreon, you know you us. will know us, <laughs> and we will be friends, yes. and there's just nothing you can do about it. Yeah. I'm sorry. You're stuck. Well, kind yeah. of stuck. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah. Um, so, do you want to talk about uh, some creepy shit that has yes. been on our list for a while? Absolutely. I'm so excited. Uh, do you want me to start? Yes. Go ahead. I'm here. Okay. I'm excited. Let's do it. All right. I need to calm down. <laughs> I like it. Just, uh, keep giving me the hype. I love it. All right. Go Haley. Um, go Haley. Go, go, oh, no. go Haley. <laughs> no? Wrong hype? All right. It's fine. Gonna... Oh, no. It's all I can see is just Carlton from Fresh Prince doing oh, the yes. arm motion. Okay. I love the Carlton. <laughs> yeah, well, me too, but yeah. anyway. Woohoo. Today, yes. I'm going to tell you about Madame Tussauds. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and if you're hearing that name and thinking, wait a minute. Yes. This is the Wax Museum. Yes. And I'm specifically going to tell you about the woman herself and how the Wax Museum came to exist. And it's kind of an interesting story. And I didn't realize that it also like meandered its way through the French Revolution. And mm-hmm. like there was a lot going on. So... Uh, Marie Tussaud, who is then Marie um, Grossholtz, 
was born on December 1st of 1761. I'm December 2nd. (laughs) Almost birthday twins. Um, Or perhaps literal birthday twins given time differences. (gasps) You never know. I'll take it. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) this was in um, uh, Strasbourg, France. And her father died in the seven years war just before she was born so her mother Anne marie walder now a widow moved them both to bern switzerland where her mother worked as a housekeeper for a doctor named philippe curtius okay which i kind of like yeah um uh, Curtius happened to be a physician well known for producing anatomical wax models for use by medical students. Ah. Since, yeah, since corpses for medical study weren't exactly easy or legal. To come by <laughs> legally. Yeah. Oh my God, um, how fun would that be to have a job, though? <laughs> right. Well, and yeah, he was well-known for doing that even though he himself was a physician he spent a lot of time doing this anatomical work um and so though i'm not entirely sure if young marie started out as one of us (laughs) um she did live in that household. Yeah. Because, you know, housekeepers lived with the people they were caring for. Mm-hmm. And so she was part of that household and began learning the art from Curtius, who had taken on the role and also the name of uncle for young Marie. Oh, I love that. Um, yeah. And so she started learning the art as a child. And as far as I know, this was a kindly uncle situation and not a creepy uncle one. Um, Thank God. Like, she would later yeah. inherit. Okay. Um, and there is no, no drama that I found regarding, um, I mean, there's plenty of drama, but. <laughs> no trauma. that relationship. <laughs> yes. All right. So. Marie, even as a very young child, showed promise. And so much that um, when Curtius ditched the whole medical modeling deal and moved to Paris to start a wax portraiture business, his young apprentice moved too. Ah. And... Sources are a little bit fuzzy on the timelines and such. But I didn't realize wax portraiture was a thing. Oh yeah. Um, well, you you know how French kings super liked their mistresses. Yeah. 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 I mean, wax <laughs> portraiture was. Well, I'll get into it. Um, so. Sources are a little bit fuzzy on this, but I believe that what happened was um, when Curtius moved to Paris, he 
left his household intact in Switzerland in case it didn't work out. Okay. And um, that Marie and her mother stayed behind to care for, or as caretakers, Mm -hmm. basically. And um, when it turned out that, in fact, Curtius was in very high demand, they would then both move with him Mm -hmm. to Paris. That makes sense. Sorry. And at this time, Marie would basically be his apprentice. And the oldest she could have been was six. Wow. Yeah, so he moved to Paris when she was, you know, four, maybe almost five, because I couldn't find the month that he moved. Yeah, things get a little and dodgy they, that far back. Yeah, and they followed about a year later. So I think she was probably almost five and then about six. Wow. When, when they moved. That's and so young. In my head, I'm like, oh, she's probably like 16, 17. Nope. <laughs> No. Mm-mm. Um, so that kind of breaks my brain a little bit. Right? I mean, but child labor back then, I mean, there's probably kids in the factory that age. Oh, there are definitely kids in the... F- I mean, there are two-year-olds who are oh, uh, working alongside seamstress parents. Like, Ugh. yeah. So, I mean, that is true, but I don't think she was made to do this. I think think she wanted to and showed aptitude for it well i mean i mean maybe i'm just biased but it sounds like fun <laughs> like I would, well it does sound like it fun. also sounds like something that in that age range it's very tactile and mm-hmm. creative and um and there's also an, a typically natural instinct for curiosity at that age so it seems like it's a good mixture of all those things that would be you know yeah appealing to and, a six-year-old well and so it's interesting to me that it seems as though she had already been learning before he left for paris so she it is it's my understanding that she was doing um a lot of the casting and um, model making, not necessarily the finishing at this point, but wow. she was very good at like death masks, like things like that. That's and, awesome. Um, yeah. And a little crazy. <laughs> I mean, but it also makes sense because she had small hands. Oh, yeah. And would have been able to manipulate things in a much smaller space. Yeah. Than many. So I guess that was one of the places where her skills uh, were really, really helpful to Curtius. And so Marie would continue to grow her talent as a wax modeler. And then a little bit later probably not much later, she began actually working for Curtius in his waxworks. And at that time, 
if you're when you're thinking about waxworks, I mean, most of us think about um, Madame Tussauds mm-hmm. and like the sort of uncanny valley creepy waxworks display. Or the early mannequins that would melt in the windows. <laughs> well, there was a fire. At oh no! The original um, wax museum, and but wax uh, burns. <laughs> Mm, sure does. I actually went down a deep rabbit hole about the flashpoint of wax oh, and yeah. the science that makes wax flammable. Yeah, and that changes which, on different waxes. Um, well, wax is like the reason you can't just light wax on fire, but wax is still the um, fuel for candles. Mm-hmm. Uh, has to do with it being heated to its gas form and the molecules that create it um, lighting. That makes sense. So, yeah, I mean it's more complicated than that, but it was a it was a fun diversion that we don't need to go down. <laughs> Maybe I will do that at some point because it's kind of neat. Ooh, and but, I um, will I will piggyback that with the. Uh, chemical heating of various clays because i really like the cone system <laughs> oh my god so we're definitely doing that yeah um all right so the role that waxworks played in this time period especially in paris um was one that like the royals they liked to see themselves made in wax. oh i bet um but also, this was a time before true likenesses were available. And so you couldn't just have a photograph of someone. Mm-hmm. There wasn't video of anyone. So any visual representation of any sort of celebrity whose name you would know and would read in the papers, you were basically depending on on an artist's rendering uh, yeah. of that person. And those did not tend to be very accurate. And so people would go see these exhibitions of waxworks because they were often modeled from life or right after death and they were accurate. So the hair color, the eye color, the height, the build, this is what those people actually looked like. And because people would not have been able to see those celebrities, that is one of the ways that they could get a trustworthy idea of what those people actually looked like. Okay. That, which, that I can understand now. Yeah, which is interesting. Um, and not necessarily what I would have thought. Right. I always thought it was kind of weird. I was like, dude, I don't understand it. But now, I mean, that makes sense. The, the birth of it, I guess. That perfectly makes sense. Uh, yeah. And so, I mean, just like now, celebrities were very popular. And... Because the, um, and there was high demand mm-hmm. for these likenesses in, sometimes in collections, sometimes in 
like traveling exhibitions like these were curiosities that people wanted to see but they weren't necessarily grotesque Mm -hmm. they weren't freaky weird um in the way that they would eventually kind of be seen (laughs) and so it's it's sort of interesting and so a lot of famous people a lot of royal people a lot of well-off people um existed in wax likenesses and this was common and there were casts of them and so more than one could be made like it was um it was very much what you think of when you think of creating molds i'm just imagining um all the wax mold machines like at zoos and stuff that kick out the yeah the vacuum yeah i love those mm-hmm. can you imagine just getting a little celebrity just kicked out like that <laughs> i'm pretty sure the um oh what is that museum in right outside of detroit mm, that has edison's house mm-hmm. greenfield village maybe sure. i can't remember anyway they have one oh, and it has a bunch they have a bunch of different rotating things that it spits out that's amazing um, the milwaukee county zoo has animals all over but i always loved the mold making moldorama moldorama yeah, that's what they're called that is what they're called <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. So, like I said, um, Marie continued to grow her talent and she did actually have, like, artistic aptitude. She was very good. It wasn't just that she was there and she learned. Mm -hmm. She was there and she was great at doing what she did. And so, in 1777, teenage Marie created her first full wax figure who was none other than Voltaire. <laughs> um, yeah. And for context, I Voltaire died. That. Yeah, I know, right? Um, for context, Voltaire died in 1778. So she was very much modeling a person who was alive at the time. Um, I mean, not for very long. Yeah. But, <laughs> Briefly, like, but yeah. But yeah, so this is a... It wasn't like a wax figure of someone who was dead and therefore couldn't have an opinion. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. That's awesome. Uh, Yeah. And so from 1780 until the French Revolution in 1789, Tussaud, well, not Tussaud at that point, um, still just Marie. created portraits of the likes of Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Benjamin Franklin, like you do. Yep. Because that's what was happening at the time. Um, She was also employed to teach votive making to uh, Louis XVI's sister, Elizabeth. (laughs) Like little votive candles? I think votives may have at the time been more like religious statuary um oh okay. there's an entire rabbit hole to go down that is the precursor of uh-huh. 
sort of wax models like these that is specifically in the church often in italy and 90 percent um, creepy no matter what oh i'm positive <laughs> terrifying um and then it sort of meandered into reliquaries mm-hmm. and like it's a whole thing it's a different episode um but that's what I think they're talking about. But I could be wrong. Maybe she was uh, making cute little candles. Who knows? But um, anyway, so she was obviously working with royalty right. at that time. And uh, during this time, according to her memoirs, she... Well, according to her memoirs, she definitely did. But in reality... She may or may not have overheard private conversations between the royals. She may or may not Ooh. have been invited to live at Versailles <gasps> for nine years. I uh-huh. may or may not need to read that memoir. <laughs> yeah, so her memoirs do exist and you can read oh, them. Oh, good. Um, but her memoirs say yes. History says, I don't know. So I'm um, believing her memoirs. I'm trusting her. Fine with me. (laughs) And uh, so, enter the French Revolution. Mm. Now, here's where things get a little dicey. As it does with French revolutions. Mm -hmm. And Versailles. (laughs) And Versailles. All right, so... uh, She was perceived as a royal sympathizer for reasons that are obvious yeah and so was her mentor and so uh, yeah it's it's complicated and sort of unclear how all of this happened but from what I understand Marie was arrested in the reign of terror and her head was shaved (gasps) in preparation for her execution by guillotine oh wow yes um but she sidestepped death Good um, honor. According to her, um, due to some fond feelings felt towards the courteous household. And upon release, uh, basically, she made wax figures on demand to avoid execution. And they were often um, either uh, prominent figures in the revolution who would, you know, be carried around and represented so people would know who they were. Yeah. And uh, this is also where people's morbid curiosity kicked in because you know the the french at this time (laughs) enjoyed a good beheading oh did they oh yeah um and so um, 
In order to avoid problems with the revolutionaries, it would seem that the wax figures that had been made previously of royals and people of high social rank. The bourgeoisie. Yes, were sort of moved out of high representation in um, the waxworks that uh, the exhibitions Mm -hmm. that people were able to see so they wouldn't be seen as royalists and according to her memoirs and I'm pausing because this is just disturbing um, okay she was employed to make death masks and whole body casts and figures of the most famous deaths of the revolution on demand or death oh um and that's rough yeah and that reportedly included louis the 16th marie antoinette um uh princessa de lamballe yeah of those all of the people who you think of when you think of uh, guillotine related hijinks I, so, I would 100% have made the same decision, but that had to have been rough. Uh, yeah, but even worse, she reportedly, like, especially when someone uh, high in the public interest was being executed, she would have to attend the execution so she could see their likeness in life. Uh. And would then reportedly be handed their head from the basket of the guillotine and then have to go create uh, the likeness um, so it could be mounted on stakes. Oh. You know. Yeah. For for the reasons. Um, And so I guess... It was not unusual for severed heads to be delivered to her workshop or to be just handed to her. Oh, that's that's going to require some therapy at some point, I would imagine. I would guess so. And I didn't read her memoir, but it weirdly, that doesn't really play too heavy a part i mean maybe she was just keeping her head down and i did not (laughs) well um, i think her early training was probably beneficial because she first learned on organs and parts things that are disassociated from being very clinical yeah so i think that clinical background probably helped her at least compartmentalize this is not um it's clearly no longer a living human, but it's just a specimen to be replicated. I would hope. Yeah. Poor peanut. Apparently, it, it really fucked her up the first time someone handed her a head from the basket. Yeah, I would um, be a little shocked if it didn't. Yeah, I guess she was uh, horrified. But <laughs> I feel like oh, that's the understatement of a year. Right. Of the year. Of a year. Of her year. 
Um, I'm not sure yet anyway. how to say what the actual funk in French, but that's exactly what I probably would have said if I was handed a head out of a basket. I only know how to say fuck you and fuck me in German. <laughs> oh, and also fuck yourself. Yeah, Duolingo so doesn't I know how cover to say that. Those. So. Anyway, Uh, so she was basically on call for the revolutionaries 24-7 in order to not be seen as a royalist and to not fall prey to the executions that were happening. And even when, like, the original leaders of the revolution started also being executed... Um, like all of all of these things were happening, and I think she was just doing what she had to do, mm-hmm. which I understand. Yeah. And I mean, it would have been very interesting if it didn't fuck you up, right? And I mean, I don't know what her mental health was doing. I she was so young. She was young. Um, yeah, I don't know. Part and so, uh, upon Curtius's death in 1794, which was not by way of revolution, it was just that he died, because yeah. um, his health wasn't amazing, and well, I guess it was maybe technically partially by revolution, because he had traveled, um... At not his own behest to do some work and his health faded. But um, upon his death in 1794, Marie inherited his collection of waxworks and also his home um, and presumably the money associated with it. Nice. Uh, So... She and her mother would not have to move. That's good. And yeah, like he seemed to really appreciate her work and make sure that she was cared for. Which, of course, now that she was a highly recognized fine artist with money, um, Francois. Tussaud, who was a civil engineer and I believe was an acquaintance of Curtius, you know, came around, (laughs) needed some capital, you know, comforted her in her sorrows, (laughs) yada yada, uh, in... Bada bing, bada boom. Yeah, and so in 1795, (laughs) they got married. About this time, we sort of transitioned into what I think of as the wax museum years okay um and this is sort of how the wax museum came to be specifically the um madame tussaud museum in london which is the original Original. yep and is still there Mm -hmm. and is still in the building that was built for it which is pretty amazing yeah, yeah, there's a there's a lot of reasons why that's amazing. <laughs> but um so in eighteen oh two, 
Tussaud traveled to London to present her collection of portraits at the Lyceum Theater. She had been invited. It didn't go well. Oh, no. But since the Napoleonic Wars rendered her unable to return home to France, she continued to travel with her collection bopping around the British Isles. Her husband, for his part, stayed in France, and they never saw each other again. <laughs> um, okay. They did, however, have three children, and I believe two of the sons survived, and a daughter passed away as a baby, I believe. Um, and so one of her sons came with her on this trip to London, and then she would later reunite with the other. But... Eh, that husband was disposable, it would seem. <laughs> yep. So, in 1835, after more than 30 years of the touring that began when she couldn't go home because Napoleon, um, she finally set up a permanent location in Baker Street on the upper floor of the Baker Street Bazaar. Baker Street! Uh, yeah, and that was where her figures were largely displayed, including the self-portrait that she made of herself in 1842 that is still on display at the entrance to her museum now. Oh. Which is fucking cool. That like is. the one she made, not a reproduction. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the actual location, the present location of the purpose-built museum wouldn't exist until after her death. And so she died in her sleep on April 16th, 1850. And um, then the specially constructed and still current museum that was commissioned by her grandson opened in London in 1884. And so I guess the, uh, the Baker Street location had, you know, was a little pressed for space. It was getting expensive and it made significantly more sense mm. to have an actual commissioned museum to show this fine art. And uh, some sculptures still exist that were made by Marie Tussaud herself. Um, like I said, That's her self-portrait. That's so astonishing, given how essentially fragile wax is of a medium. It is not super sturdy. No. Um, the gallery originally contained about 400 different figures. Ooh. When it opened, um, but there was a fire in 1925, and then some German bombs in 1941 that severely damaged um, most of the oldest models. Mm. But the casts survived. Oh, that's good. So the historical works were able to be remade mm -hmm. and i mean they obviously weren't her work but they were made with her molds um which is 
kind of fantastic. It very um, much is. And the oldest figure on display is that of um, Madame du Barry, which is one of the um, pieces from Curtius uh, from 1765 and was left to her um, at his death. And so that's kind of cool. That's very cool. Yeah, and I believe um, Madame du Barry was one of the royal mistresses, possibly the royal mistress um, in pre-revolution France, but I could be completely wrong. That sounds right. <clears throat> I, th- I think that's right. I think you're right, and too. Yeah, and so... We'll get an email if you're not. <laughs> we sure And that's okay. We welcome them. It's true. And so now I'm just going to tell you a little bit about the 1925 fire because I found the original article. Nice. Uh, um, from the Manchester Guardian, which is now um, the Guardian, from the 19th of March, 1925... And uh, it reads, uh, Madame Tussauds, the famous waxworks exhibition in er, Marlebone Road, London, was badly damaged last night by fire. The fire was discovered shortly after 10.30. By 11.30, the interior of the top story was a raging furnace. The whole of the roof collapsed with the exception of a dome-like structure at the western end. Scores of fire engines were in attendance and probably 10,000 people assembled in the neighborhood. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. The fire was extinguished by midnight. It was stated that all of the Napoleonic relics had been destroyed. The total amount of damage cannot yet be estimated. The whole of the roof and the top floor of the main building was destroyed. (laughs) The firemen were greatly handicapped by being unable to get at the hydrants, and there was almost a mile of hose carried in and out of garages and other buildings. The fire brigade, under the command of Mr. A.R. Dyer, who was brought to the scene from a theater where he had been spending time the evening with some friends, uh, despite the fact that he was in evening dress, he took an active part in the operations. So Good on him. Um, like, for real evening dress, too? Like, <laughs> 1925 nice. dress from a theater? Oh, can you imagine <laughs> fighting burning wax with water? Uh, well, I mean, bad idea. But also, one thing that I thought was fascinating... Um, was that, uh, was this paragraph, um, when signs that the outbreak was becoming under control began to be evident, the men of the salvage corps entered the ground floor and basement of the building. Almost immediately, they began to bring out some of the portable property. At first, consisted mainly of pictures of all descriptions, 
two of the Salvage Corps men were seen struggling along with a huge cage containing a green parrot, which, after a moment or two, hopped onto its perch and began to show signs of a return to perkiness. <laughs> um, I love that. Yeah, apparently the parrot said something that freaked everyone out, but now I can't find the actual quote. Like, I I think it was something to the effect of, oh, what a mess tonight was or something. Like, it was something, a very British cranky parrot who was fine, by the way. Oh, that's awesome. Um, also, it's yeah. very impressive that they went busting in to save things, too. You know well, what I mean? I don't know what the salvage court is but some of my research indicated that maybe it was um like insurance people okay and that it's entirely possible that they were getting in the way of the fire brigade mm. because they didn't want to pay out as much uh yeah mm, so, makes sense. i mean this was a normal thing at the time to uh prevent loss of property Ten thousand people though I cannot what? even that is more than every person in the town we live in by far. <laughs> mm -hmm. Wow. And this is my favorite quote from this article. And uh, I think it's where I will wrap things up. An eyewitness who lives opposite Madame Tussauds said in an interview that the fire was a wonderful spectacle. <laughs> Strong red and golden flame. <laughs> Damn it. I have to start over again. <laughs> Sorry. An eyewitness who lives... God damn it. <laughs> now my watch just started telling me that it's time to feed the cats. An eyewitness who lives opposite Madame Tussauds said in an interview that the fire was a wonderful spectacle. Strong red and golden flames leapt 50 feet from the roof of the building. The wax modeled could be distinctly heard sizzling. <laughs> and that's where I went down the rabbit hole of well, the wax. wax. The wax melting point. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That yeah. is quite the description. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, I mean, as I said earlier, the molds existed the sculptures were remade the waxwork still exists the techniques that um marie tussaud developed are still very much employed by the museum today and there are museums around the world mm-hmm uh, bearing her name but and uh, I mean having lived in New York City until very recently it was more of a joke I mean like yeah. a tourist attraction sort of going to Times Square roll your eyes thing yeah I but I've been there and it's really it's really cool but having the context of this history makes it really really interesting and um i also did do research on the techniques employed for 
making these figures and how that works and how they actually get such accurate likenesses for all of the faces and body structure. Um, but that is basically an entire right. episode on its own. And so I, I will continue that on in uh, the Patreon. That's awesome. And I also will tell you a little bit about um, the... The part of the museum that is no longer in operation, <laughs> um, which is the Chamber of Horrors at the London Museum, uh, which was permanently closed, I believe, in 2016. Oh, so for, pretty recently. You know, reasons. Yeah. But exactly what you think was in there was in there. Like, hearkening back to... French Revolution heads on spikes. That's probably where she got her like art therapy in. <laughs> that was probably oh I so I've been to the one in San Francisco and I have to honestly say that I've never like the whole concept has seemed weird to me and I never understood it, but I absolutely have a new view on it now. You know what I mean? Um Yeah, I mean it's I knew that it was a massively skilled endeavor. But I didn't know that she was, you know, the child of a single mother who just by chance was able to meet this person who would then teach her this process of fine art that would both endanger her life and save it and also still exist it's pretty amazing and i'm willing to bet yeah. like in my head i can picture it and i'm willing to bet that that was his way of being able to relate to a child because it doesn't sound obviously he didn't have any of his own you know and right. so um so that was his way of bonding with her and you know she took to it and it's it's a rather Almost sweet story is it, it is, is right yeah I mean, I mean to I do think it's a sweet story yeah I mean to come from yeah to come from a, a fate that most would end up very much not comfortable at all um yeah and then you know trailblaze an entire art form that is still around and created a museum and it is a museum an empire that's across the globe is amazing <laughs> yeah and reportedly um she like during his lifetime her skill had by far surpassed that of courteous and he liked it oh that like he was pleased we stand that... a fanboy i mean i yeah. mean and, and i think that that's where I mean, you and I have that shared absolute love of art and science, which yep. so often is considered two drastically different things, but it's really not. And no. the combination of them is such a sweet spot. And I think that as technical as he was, because his his schooling and his background was in, you know, uh, doctoring, then... Mm -hmm. 
you know, she tipped it over in the point of like her, her strength was in the art. So it was like a yin yang and she managed to, it's, you can, it's easier, I think, to learn, um, very technical things than it is to learn creative things. Right. Because you can't entirely, you can teach a skill set, but you can't teach like you can't teach a chef how to have a better palate you, you can't know, to teach taste. talent it's, it's yeah you, there's just things in there you can't teach so i think that's wonderful how I, on on every level that he supported her and that he was happy for her that she surpassed him and that she it, it's just a i i bet you that would make a very sweet um like movie documentary you know just the life of the two of them together growing up in that age you know yep and i mean as he was like her chosen uncle i assume that they held each other in close affection yeah although i don't actually know but he did like he was very pleased with the quality of her work he was very pleased to continue working with her well and he left everything to her and her mother i mean he could have found somebody else right i mean he made sure and he left his entire life's work he left all of his wax works to her see that's amazing and he could have you know bequeathed him to a museum or you know or to an institution of learning you know yeah Yep. I believe the oldest surviving um, uh, wax figure that Marie Tussaud made doesn't exist in her museum. I believe that it exists um, at a different museum in London. That's good. Um, I mean. But yeah. Wow. And I I think it might have been Voltaire, but I can't <laughs> That would be amazing. But I don't amazing. think it was that one. I think it was a different one. Can you improve Voltaire? Voltaire uh-huh. 2.0? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I could be completely misremembering that it was Voltaire because it's obviously it stuck in my me. head yeah. that one of her early ones was Voltaire. But yeah, anyway. Oh, that was amazing. thank you thank you thank you it was quite something and yeah so if you want to know more about it join us on patreon because i'm gonna take a deep dive into how do you do that like the freckles and the pores and the eyebrows and the why can i actually why can i touch them why am i allowed to touch them yeah oh yeah and uh yeah so Yay. Anyway. Yes. Speaking Come back for that. Yeah. Speaking of Patreon, if you listen to our Patreon dispatch uh from the Curiosity Shop episode Uh Curiosity Shop episode 51 Home Not So Sweet Home, where my eldest joined me as I took us down the trail of the history of haunted houses. You may remember me talking about wanting to do more of a deep dive on the Grand Guinal, and today is that day. Yay! (laughs) So, 
The Grand Guinal was a theater in the Pigalle district of Paris, which was a disreputable district district near Mont Montmartre, alongside the Moulin Rouge, uh, founded by a Oscar Maitinier in 1897. That's where naughty things happen. Oh, just you wait. Uh, while it was the smallest theater in Paris, having only 293 seats, it mm-hmm. was absolutely the most intriguing for so many different ways. Uh, <laughs> no effort at all was made to hide the fact that its former life was as a chapel. Uh, with the private boxes being old confessionals and seven-foot angels still hanging over the orchestra. The this reminds me of uh, the gay club in somewhere near Union Square that is an old church, and it's fucking amazing. That's delightful. Anytime I hear hanging angels, it reminds me of the uh, House on the Rock. Um, so the obstacles, though, that the architecture presented, because, I mean, you're trying to create a theater in a church. I mean, it's not exactly, um, apples and apples, uh, were like well worth the benefit, uh, the opaque furniture, there was Gothic structures placed sporadically along the walls. Um, all of that helped to market the theater. It was the eeriness that struck you immediately upon entering that pulled people in. And it was the promise of an experience, not just a show. And it's said that the smell of the original church's incense lingered in the building for like years, which I mean, Catholics had good incense. I mean, I will give them that. Um, So Oscar himself. I mean, it's true. It is. Uh, Oscar himself was born January 17th, 1859, and would initially follow the same career path as his father, which was actually into the police. Hmm. As secretary to the commissariat of La Tour Saint-Jacques, he mm-hmm. observed and became intrigued by those that others deemed lowlifes. Um, and he used... I mean, fair. Yeah. He used the scientific interest and I to later write what were deemed naturalist novellas, generally gravely in style. And he actually did some pieces in Argot. And Argot is like, uh, it would be considered like the language of the street. It's a it's a made up language that's different than like a just a dialect um, for, oh, cool. for Le Chat Noir, which, you know, I've had 450 days of French and Le Chat Noir is the black cat, so... Just in case. I mean, I know that. Well, hey, no. (laughs) Uh, So naturalism was a 19th century movement in European drama that focused on creating grounded plays that depicted regular characters and realistic settings and situations. So like normal people. Um, Uh And it was the normal in air quotes. And the main characters of his stories uh. Yeah, the choice of them is what fueled his reputation. They were the very people that he observed while working with the police, and they were written in the language of the streets. Um, in fact, his Mademoiselle Fifi, written in 1896, was the first ever French play to include a sex worker as a character. 
Uh, it would also be temporarily banned. Was she the titular character? Yep. And uh, it would also be temporarily banned by the French police. But uh, that's a little bit oh, later. Oh, no. <laughs> Uh, and this pretty much caused him to amp things up a bit. And the following year, he wrote Louis, which included a sex worker and a murderer meeting in a hotel bedroom. It was also that year that he purchased the building to create the theater to present his own pieces. So where did the name Guinal come from? Well, the theater, it's so I love that when I start learning and deep diving things in history, when I find like weird things that intersect with it and everything. So the theater was named after the main character, Guinal, in a Lyonnais Punch and Judy-esque style puppet show. Hmm. It represented workers in the silk industry of France. And while obviously puppet shows are typically geared toward children, Guinal's sharp not necessarily punch and judy though right well and that's why it was punch and judy ask it's sharp wit mm-hmm. and it's linguistic like verve uh drew adults into it as well so it's kind of like you know when you watch like shrek and you catch like a double entendre as an adult that kids don't get mm-hmm. kind of thing um so without going too much off topic uh, Lorraine Marguet, who was Guinal's car- creator, was born into a family of modest silk weavers on March 3rd of 1769. Now, the certificate of his marriage to Jeannie Esterel in 1788 shows that he was unable to read. And when hard times fell on the silk trade during the French Revolution, he became a peddler and in 1797, you know, started to practice dentistry like you do. Uh, Which, you know, in those days, as we've discussed on a previous episode, (laughs) was simply just yanking teeth out. The service to... I mean, gotta go. Yeah, the service to yank the teeth was free. The money was made from the medicine sold afterwards to ease the pain. (laughs) Now, to attract patients, he started setting up a puppet show in front of his dentist chair. Uh... So he is definitely another person we should maybe deep dive on some other day, but not today. I just oh, thought this is really similar to the um, the dental circus, right? So that, uh, that we talked about exactly. So I just thought mm-hmm. it was really interesting how all these things just kind of intertwine. So Oscar yes. set the tone, and under his direction of the theater, um, it focused on again the class of people that no one else would touch, literally or figuratively. Uh, and were mm. considered taboo. So not only sex workers, but criminals. I think plenty of people touched them. <laughs> True. <laughs> well, the sex workers, but not the criminals or the street urchins. Uh, no. Anyone that would be at the bottom of Paris's social echelon. Uh, Oscar worked with André Antoine, who was the founder of Theatre Libre on the basic model for the theater. And he remained the director until 1898. So what our friend Oscar created was not only carried on, but amped up. Um, In fact, it's joked that the plays at the theater are part of the longest running crime wave in existence with over 60 years of murder on display. Oops. So um, as I said, Mademoiselle Fifi was briefly shut down, but it's tame compared to what the next director, Max Mori, would present. So he continued, Max continued to touch on the social and political themes. Um, 
he very much stayed true to Oscar's interest in the common people or the lower life people. Um, and here we take a break to sing the pulp song. <laughs> and okay. Uh, but Max, he began adding heavy doses of, oh, murder and revenge. Oops. But we'll get there. A dollop here. Right. We'll get there in just a bit. So Max was born in Paris, 1866, and he originally went to school for engineering. Beyond that, there is tragically little about his life anywhere. Like his Wikipedia is six sentences long and it's really huh. basic, like who he married, when he was born. It just, And it's not even the date he was born. It's just the year. For someone that accomplished so much, including commander of the Legion of Honor and having like an actual avenue named after him, he's written books and plays and his work is cited all over the place. Uh, like, I, I really mean tragically little. You, you can't find things. And it boggles my mind. Um, what we do know about Max, though, is when Oscar was like, oh, I am pushing boundaries. Max was like, hold my fucking cognac. Uh, so now in, in, in any art form is created to invoke like thought and feeling and, you know, trigger some kind of sensory experience. Max absolutely had a goal to do just that. While the, the while theater at any point may have moved people to like tears and laughter and maybe a slightly elevated heart rate here and there, it had not moved the masses to faint. No. Prior to Max, the topics had been enough to cause seats to fill from the scandal of it all. But Max wanted more. He quickly developed a unique brand for the Grand Guinal as the home of the grotesquely convincing horror stories, often based on real life examples of sickening violence. He, oh, good. Yeah. He combined the use of plots that were pulled from newspaper reports of real life crime and what was considered depravity at the time with like clever staging techniques for realistically suggesting things like, oh, gouged eyeballs and spurting blood. Oops. And the new brand was pretty much quasi realism meets gaudy melodrama. And it sold tickets. When. So basically, it's the precursor of the slasher film? It is. It really is. Uh, when theater goers came to the Grand Guinal, they would be presented with a handful of short plays, which usually alternated between comedic and horror in an attempt to accentuate the experience of both, um, which was a program, like a programming tactic devised by Max, which, again, is used later on, which we'll get to. But like it, he really... It's the whole to understand bitter, you need to understand sweet combination, mm -hmm. which is brilliant. And also it, it's kind of like, you know, like edging. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you, 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 get, you get that horror and you're like, oh my God, I can't take anymore. And then you're laughing. And then you're like, oh my God, I'm going to pee my pants. Oh my God, that's grotesque. Like it's that, that complete 180 in there. That's like, holy crap. <laughs> um... <laughs> That's not where I thought you were going. You know, hello, cold brew. Um, <laughs> I mean, honestly, I it, mean, it works. Uh, oh, my. Uh, so Max Mori, this is a quote. Max Mori decided to move the theater 
From the Slice of Life to the Slice of Death, laughs Richard J. Hand, professor of media practice at the University of East Anglia, who held a workshop for the Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies on the Grand Guinal. It became a horror theater, but not a supernatural theater. They were interested in serial killers, escaped lunatics, revenge attacks, which no doubt so drew people in. like us. Right. <laughs> They'd read about it in the newspaper, then see it enacted on stage, which is brilliant. Uh, one actor, Paul Rotineau, was also a stage technician, and he pioneered grisly like lo-fi special effects he, uh quote he was very famous for his invention of stage blood that apparently congealed under the lights says hand he uh, yeah oh. he developed terrific Yellow illusions gelatin i assume uh, i am guessing uh which uh, maybe i'll deep dive into that then uh or maybe it was real whoa, um the photos are like I included posters from the theater, oh, no. but uh, they're just posters, so they're very artsy. But oh my god, the photos from some of these shows are unreal. Uh, uh, da -da -da -da. He developed terrific illusions, often based on magic tricks, the kind of thing Penn and Teller would do in a magic show. But building that into a horror show, so the eyeballs come flying out, or heads get chopped off, or acid <laughs> melts a face. Like you do. Like you do. The actors would use an early form of latex to suggest a gooey melting face. And in one of the famous short plays, The Torture Garden, somebody is skinned alive. <laughs> Quote, they'd get a long strip of elastoplast, but the sticky side was painted red. When that was pulled off, you'd get that ripping sound, says Hand, a simple effect. But apparently when it acted well, it was extraordinary. People couldn't quite believe what they had seen. Ah, <laughs> no. Nope. <laughs> no. Oh, just wait. So, no. for audience members of a more delicate disposition, help was on hand. The biggest marketing tool and pride of Max was to say audience fainted at every show. So they had their own doctor there to revive them. In well, fact, of course. he was That's just good marketing. Right? He was said to judge <laughs> the success of any given play by the number of audience members who passed out. <laughs> oh, no. This is my favorite. During one performance, when a man watching the ghastly horror play passed out, the in-house doctor was set for. However, no doctor could be found. When the unconscious man came to, the theater employees apologized profusely for their inability to locate their resident physician. The man, ex the man looked at them and explained wearily, I am the doctor. <laughs> now, to keep, oh, no. <laughs> to keep things from getting too grim, the short horror plays, like I said, were interspersed with comedies, but they were also not just, you know, your regular comedy, because why would we do anything, you know? No, we got to amp this shit up. They were one-act sex farces. <laughs> Quotes hand, it's a structure for a good night out, that kind of pattering. <laughs> I don't disagree. And a good night out, it apparently very much was. So, again, audience flocked to the Grand Guinal. There were local loyals. Uh, there were 
more of their like the bourgeois audiences would be lured by you know across town by promises of you know these illicit acts and vicious thrills and the fact that it was down a dodgy alley in an edgy district just added i mean of course that's like catnip right it's all just so packaged up remember those (laughs) confessional boxes yeah well because they are confessional boxes the grids on them allowed the inhabitants which would have been you know like the they could see out and watch the show oh no but no one could see in oh no and it is a feature that apparently many carousing couples took full advantage of you know what fair enough quote Apparently, people would get up to all sorts of things behind the grill, said Han, to the extent of the actors having to say, have you finished yet? (gasps) Whether they were more turned on by the sex farces or the torture is a matter of speculation. But it Mm. seems the Grand Guinal patrons were certainly alive to the erotically charged juxtaposition of sex and violence, which I mean, it is a golden combination. Yeah, it's true. Uh, Time tested. Right. Uh, in 1914, Mari K- or Max gave the leadership of the theater to Camille Choisy, uh, who focused on uh, amping it even more, uh, particularly in the staging and special effects. Uh, again, writing plays about sex and violence was shocking enough, but other, under Choisy, the theater was devoted to bringing their horrors to life as realistically and gruesomely as they possibly could with all right i heard whores <laughs> not horrors you know eh, a little bit of both i mean yeah affectionately said um we do not <laughs> exactly yeah um yeah said without judgment uh, it's no just, judgment whatsoever it occurred to me moments after that 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 is not <laughs> get it get said. it uh yeah so blood gushed from wounds, bodies were cut to pieces, and to get together with the theatrical lighting and sounds, the thrills and scares were so shocking that according to a 1957 New York Times Magazine article, audience members would call for doctors or police during performances. The article goes on to tell of a blood transfusion scene that caused a record 15 people to faint. Max would have been so fucking proud. <laughs> Wow. Wait, so people would call the cops? Yeah. They'd be like... Because they thought it was uh, real. That real. Like, they... But... I, You went there for that. Yeah, but... <laughs> I just think it's very funny that people are like, I'm but... scared. I'm getting the cops. Stomp, stomp, stomp. <laughs> so, it it was a concern that the Grand Guinea, obviously, was feeding our basis instincts, which it was. Uh, and so, obviously, the theater was attacked by critics. Um, mm-hmm. And critics regularly, again, said it was feeding into society's most basest instincts. Still, though, artistically, the Grand Guinal was most, like, mostly quite respected, like, highly respected. You had... I mean, that makes sense. Yep. Uh, you had great acting performers who were able to go from realism to all-out melodrama, Really without the audience seating the join, says Hand. A lot of critics admire Paula Maxa, who was the great scream queen of the Grand Guinal. She was a must-see in her day. And it was a theater where you had great writing. Even critics who denounced the morality of the plays 
said, well, at least they're Rel Witten. <laughs> uh, it even... Not wrong. It even drew major writers... Like, oh, Phantom of the Opera's author, uh, Gayson LaRoe, and Maurice Rigard, who wrote The Hands of Warlock. Norrell Coward even wore a play, a short play for the Grand you know. Joseph Conrad tried, but was turned down. <laughs> Oops. The Gina would try to branch out in Britain. Under uh, Choisy, she opened a little theater in 1920, but it was shut down in 1922. It was shut down not because of a lack of interest, but because what was legal in France was not necessarily legal in Britain, and Lord Chamberlain was pretty much not having it. So back in France, though, uh, and actually it was specifically like the sex stuff more than the gore. Um, Back in France, the Grand Guinal was packing them in, though, uh, through the 1920s. But after World War II hit, the theater kind of struggled, which... Is, I mean, everything. Um, it did stay open. Right. It had to stay open during the war to continue to thrive or pretty much just limp along. But because of that, um, which happened to a lot of things in France at the time, mm-hmm. uh, controversially, it became popular with the occupying German forces. Oh, good. So although shows went on to 1962, I mean, after the whole. Wow, really? Yeah. Uh, after the horrors of occupation and the stories of what happened in the concentration camps, oh yeah, it, the love affair was pretty much over. Uh, quote, I think... Yeah, I get that. For Parisians, uh, watching these playful displays of horror and torture maybe was quite not so much fun in that context, says Hand. The theater oh, yeah, of horror... Seen the real thing. Yeah, the theater of horror they were so proud of took on a bitter taste after Auschwitz and the fact that it made its money with the occupying forces. Mm. It also was the rise of cinema at the time. So the audience goes to see the close-up and zoom shots and the shower scenes of cinema and the Grand Guinal. Somebody suddenly seems a little quaint and a little antiquated, says Hand. And it's true. Hand, however, does think its spirit is still alive today. Um, And it very much is because horror movies have absolutely learned from it and patterned things from it, especially and that need to build up to a scare or to switch between terror and comedy. I know my favorite, my favorite horror movies are the ones that have comedy in them. Like when I was younger, I liked The Nightmare Mm -hmm. on Elm Streets because they had comedy in it. Lost Boys, absurd. Uh, The Scream series, uh, Cabin in the Woods, things like that that have the, the horror in there, but also have that comic part of it or campiness yeah, an element of camp almost. yeah i love oh i love a campy horror for me. but its influence can also still be seen in live theater um han suggested that in everything from washington dc's molotov theater who explicit, explicitly drew on the grand guinal's techniques to commercially popular fare like the women in black and ghost stories or even in the immersive atmospheric world building of companies like punch drunk um, it is also a fun fact, the theater is featured, not entirely accurately, but it is a major component in part of the series Penny Dreadful, um, oh. which makes sense. But it... And I mean, they really did pioneer practical effects. Right. I mean, to the, and I, again, like, I will pull some photos um, and... 
I will list a trigger warning and disclaimer because they are that good. Um, there are some that you look at the person and you're like, and be, especially because these photographs are taken in black and white and in such a, I guess, crude way that right. it could be a theater shot or it could be from the front line. You know what I mean? Like it's, oh, it's very yeah. hard to just to, to discern the difference. They really took this genre into heights that had not been experienced and right and again like they paved the way for that um and i'm sure that many of their techniques were then actually used for the special effects in like the earlier horror movies like psycho and mm -hmm. things like that um it is also um really funny to me when i showed my kids to uh movies that like I watched when I was a kid that scared the crap out of me. And they're like, dude, these special effects are shit. And I was like, shut up. Because <laughs> they weren't then. And I remember watching, um, re-watching. It was one of the omens. And uh, there's a scene where this plate glass window flies off. I think it's like the back of a truck. And it's supposed to like decapitate a person. And it's literally, you can see it is a mannequin head with red paint on it flying across the screen. Like so blatantly. Um, which is just comical That's at this the point. problem with HDTV. Right. <laughs> just comical. But, you know, we didn't have the, back then, obviously, like, there was nothing compared to what we have now. So you can't, you know, comparing them is hard. But it, it is so interesting to me how something was so controversial, but yet so in, in topic. And not just in the fact that it was horror and sex, but based from newspaper articles, based on trying to show the lives of people who didn't have their stories told. And right. you take all of that and it's well written by respected people. And then you it, it, it launches itself into this decades of success, decades from some theater in an old church. You know, with 293. Right. I saw somebody wrote 250, but everything I've, you know, so it, it's somewhere in there, but it still was not a substantial sized theater. Um, no, that's that's a pretty, pretty modest size. Right. Uh, there's even photos, black and white photos of couples sitting in the confessional booth. <laughs> that's adorable. Right. And also maybe spicy. Right. <laughs> I, which I... I kind of think is amazing. Like, I just, you know what? Yeah. Get it. <laughs> Get your night out. Uh, not I mean, only that, but... Everybody who went there knew that that was happening. <sighs> I mean, it's not like anyone was surprised. Right. Not only that, but if you take out the whole context of plays occurring there, just the whole spiciness in a church factor alone... <laughs> You know, listen, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so that is the uh, the story of the Grand Guinal in uh, its most basic romp through um, by somebody who was initially a cop and somebody who was an engineer. And I'm not sure what Camille did before, but yeah. 
I feel like having been a cop would actually be useful because you right. knew where the boundaries were. Right. And, and I mean, Legally. It, and you had a up close. Seat oh, I didn't even think about at, that. Seat at the table of the crime scenes. Yeah, like the actual horror. Mm hmm. That was then translated onto. And I don't, I mean, I would think it would be a good tool to actually, I can see how it actually humanizes the victims of these crimes versus um, the spec, even though it's done in such a spectacular fashion, back then, the, you know, the violence was the spectacle and the victim was lost in it. Whereas in these plays, the victims were humanized in a way that they weren't before. Right. So it, there's a lot deeper rooted in the amazingness of just this ability to shock and awe and gore and make people faint. But it's also mm-hmm. bringing to life stories and people who were overlooked and looked down upon and give them a stage. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love everything about it. I thought it was absolutely amazing. I was so happy to stumble upon it and surprised that I hadn't before. Um, No, it's... I had forgotten that you were eventually going to do a deeper dive on it. And I'm so glad you did. Yeah. Because, wow. Yeah, and it that is, not only that, but I mean, again, like, it is actually one of the things that sparked haunted houses. And especially the modern ones where they're immersive experiences where you, you know, Mm -hmm. so it, where you're seeing people actually, you know. So, yeah, Yeah. I mean, what, what it sparked uh, and the flame that's continued on has grown to so many different things um, just based on, you know, this guy going, hey, these people and they maybe need a story and I want to write about, you know, them and I want to, you know, maybe throw in some really realistic shit. <laughs> you know, I, I kind of want to know more people. about the sex farces too. <laughs> like, I want to know. Like I know the I know the gist behind some of this horror stories, but there's um what I went through didn't cover a lot on the sex farces, which I have to imagine. I want to know more about the sex farce. This I'm gonna see if I can dig up some more for Patreon. Um, All right, because yeah, so I think <laughs> that might perhaps bring us to <gasps> the weekly worst way to, way to die. die. Yes. But is yours. Um, guillotine. Oh, for sure. That would suck. <laughs> Although I guess it's I, quick. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Mine is special effects gone wrong. <laughs> Not dissimilar to guillotine. <laughs> right? Can you imagine? You'd be on stage and you'd be like, people would be like, God, she's a really good actress. I'd be like, no, I'm really fucking dying, dude. <laughs> Wake up the doctor. Get the smelling salts. I'm bleeding out. Yeah. <laughs> and they'd just be like, Yeah, oh. that that scares me. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So hey. Oh my goodness. Do you want to be spooky, internet friends? Yes. 
You can find us at Bones and Bobbins on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, TikToks, although we haven't made any yet. Um, basically, all of the social medias. Or you can just pop on over to BonesandBobbins.com. It's true. And don't forget to rate and review this podcast. It pleases the internet gremlins, and that's how we show up in recommendations so that other morbid souls can find us. Bring forth the morbid souls! Bring them now. Yes. And on that yes. note, let us leave you with some advice that you should never forget. Mm-hmm. Lock your doors. And don't run with scissors. Especially on stage. Tripping. Yeah, just, just don't oh, do that. It's not good. <laughs> Each episode of the Bones and Bobbins podcast Everyone. is Bye. written and researched by <laughs> Haley Pearson Cox and Natalie Hoyce. Our music was composed by Loyalty Freak Music. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Bones and Bobbins. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify or check us out wherever you listen to your favorite podcast so you won't miss a minute of our strange and creepy content. <laughs>